Welcome to Adulthood Made Easy, a podcast from Real Simple Magazine that will not only help you navigate real life, but win at real life. I'm your host, Sam Zabel. So many of you have written into me or talked to me about the idea of starting over, changing paths, or pivoting completely on a career that you're not really loving. And so I have tried to seek out people who could speak to this, who graduated with one degree and pursued something else. You might remember my friend Maddie from a couple of episodes back who graduated as a theater major and is now pursuing a degree in business. I have invited someone really awesome to join me today to talk about this. Her name is Danielle Claro. She's at Real Simple, she's the deputy editor and New York Times bestselling author of The New Health Rules, which came out last year. She is one of the first people I really sat down and talked to when I started at Real Simple two years ago. We sat in her office. We talked about where I came from, where she came from, and I discovered that she used to be a dancer before somehow in her winding path ending up as a journalist and an editor. So, Danielle, thank you for joining me today. Thank you for having me. Thanks for commuting from work. We commuted together (laughs) and we came all the way here. And, Danielle, I just thought it would be great to talk to you for so many reasons. One, because you are, like I said, one of the early people I met at work. And I think it's a great lesson that you should just talk to people and sit down with people and knock on people's doors at your office so you can learn from them, which no one wants to do, which I didn't want to do. I was sort of asked to do it and talk to you, but it ended up being great. It can be scary, but it's really nice. And I love sitting down with new people, especially. Right. And two, because like I said, I actually have never heard the full story of how you went from dancer to editor. And as someone who we've established, I grew up in a theater background. My sister was a dancer. I'm so fascinated by this path. So let's talk about you at my age, 22, 23, living in New York. What was your life like? At 22, 23, I was dancing for a little company called Sharon Fogarty Dance Theater, which I loved. And I remember I had not been dancing. I was teaching aerobics, which is what we used to just call jumping around in a dance studio to music. But it was (laughs) a very um, hot form of exercise in the uh, 80s. Mm -hmm. And I had been in school at Hunter College, which is in Manhattan. And I was teaching at this studio, and I had not been dancing. And when I saw this group perform, I thought, I really want to perform with them. I had in my head that I was a dancer, and I had sort of put it on the back burner to pay the rent. Mm -hmm. And then I got involved with this group, and I really was just so happy to be part of it. What type of dance was it? It was modern dance, and there was also some singing and some theater to it. So it was kind of like uh, edgy, weird musical theater in a way. So you started this idea of like just going for it really early on, like not being a dancer, not going to school for dance and just joining this performance troupe and and going for it. No, I was a dancer. Oh, you were a dancer. I was already dancing, but I mean, I danced since I was 11. Oh, but, okay. But I mean, the truth is, and you asked me about my, you know, hearing my story, I've never heard my story either. And it's not really a story. It's sort of a patchwork of experiences and events and ups and downs. I was a dancer since I was 11. I, I meant to be a dancer, but oh, okay. I, as happens for a lot of people, I think a lot of artists is you're not doing your thing. Like you want to be doing your thing and you're not doing your thing. And what do you mean by that? Like you're not dancing if you're a dancer. You're not painting if you're a painter. You're not writing if you're a writer. You know, I've, Lena Dunham deals with it so well on girls, yeah. I think. People come to New York, even though I grew up here, but I moved out of my parents' house and I was in an apartment. So I had all these expenses. You know, I had rent to pay and bills to pay. And where in there does your art fit? Yeah. And I figured it out. I figured it out. And I had this life that was actually really fun where I had a few different jobs. 
Um, I was a copy editor, freelance copy editor, which is just in my blood. I come from editors, Mm -hmm. and those were my summer jobs. When I was in high school, I proofread math textbooks one summer. Oh, my gosh. Another another summer, I worked in the library at a publishing company called Scholastic. Yeah. My parents both worked at Scholastic. Their book fair used to – that was like the best day of the year when Scholastic Book Fair came in. And I came to home with – a list of books circled in the catalog that I wanted. And my mom was like, "We that's 150 books and we don't have room or space or time for that. That was the family swag in yeah. my house. That's what we got for free. We're that's scholastic great. books. That was the dream. Right. Well, everybody has a different dream, right? Yeah. <laughs> so I was, you know, I had the opportunity to copy edit. I actually one time had a job as a fact checker. That was a disaster. In what way? In the way where I made a mistake I came in the next day and all these books were laid out on my desks to show me that I had made a mistake and the person I was working for didn't turn or speak to me. And I ran out and in shame and never went back. Oh, my gosh. It was a very painful. I must have been about your age. I don't think I don't know what I would have done either. I was so ashamed. We'll see. And and we would have had different. I would have sat in the bathroom all day or faked sick. Moved back home to Cleveland. Right. Mine was to run outside crying and, you know, go to a payphone and call a friend. But the uh, it turned out that as far as sort of support jobs go, you know, copy editing was a great support job for me because I'm, I'm just kind of quiet, like a loner. I want to work by myself. Mm-hmm. Fact checking, you had to call people and bother them. And I felt constantly just bad about it right. at all times. So when I discovered, oh, okay, copy editing, I'm good at this. I'm not bothering anybody. I was able to get freelance jobs so that I would take dance class in the morning, bike somewhere and go to work for a little bit, you know, copy edit for four hours, leave and go to rehearsal at night, sometimes get in a couple of classes that I would teach, which paid really well. And that was sort of my life. It was very patched together. And I loved the variety of it. And I think that that's something that would be so difficult. I don't know if it's you need to have a certain personality or you need to have what you need to have. But for me, I, I'm i such a traditional path follower in that I thought, okay, I knew I wanted to be a journalist or you know something in that realm. And so I knew I wanted to apply to a media company. And once I was at the media company, I knew I wanted to do the things with the writing. And I can't imagine the ability to balance. I mean, what was it like to balance all of those things together? There was or? no balance. And and also, at the risk of sounding like a cliche, there's a real difference between our generations and that nobody was paying attention to me. Like, I right. have kids close to your age, so I know how much we're kind of on them and working on giving them opportunities and making sure they're right. fully actualized. And that's not how it went. I was one of five kids. I have great parents, but they had stuff to deal with, you yeah. know? So That's true. When I moved to New York, my mom was on it. (laughs) She was like, don't walk home alone before, you know, after 8 p.m. and or before 9 a.m. And, (laughs) you know, where are you going? Where are you getting your groceries? And do you have a CVS near you? And there was there's a lot more watching. Right. And, you know, my mother still I mean, when I was at that point in my life, she definitely called all five of her kids every day. Mm -hmm. No question about it. But did she know I didn't have health insurance? Probably not. Mm -hmm. She didn't ask. Mm -hmm. So she didn't know. But those are the kinds of risks that I think probably your generation is more careful about. Mm-hmm. You know, we we were just slapping it together, always broke and um, figuring just figuring it out. You know, it just feels like we are more 
we're funneled in a different way. Like you're you're put into the world and it's set, it, the question is always, so what do you do? And what's your job? And what are you going to do? And what's your plan? And I don't know if were you asked those same questions at my age? I don't think so. But I think what's interesting is that I feel like you have the power, your generation, to change that by not asking those questions of people, mm-hmm. you know? I, but I think we're so used to right now putting people in boxes and slotting them and where do they rank in relation to us? So mm-hmm. people ask, what do you do? Instead of what do you care about or Mm -hmm. I heard a really interesting question on uh, Krista Tippett on Being, the Mm -hmm. NPR show, and it was um, where does it hurt? And I thought that would be such a nice question to ask somebody instead (laughs) of what do you do? Yeah. You know, Uh, but I was among, you know, I was among artsy friends and at my jobs, especially where I taught exercise, everybody there was something else. Everybody there was an actor or a singer or a dancer or a student. And at the risk of putting you in a box in that same way, would you have considered yourself at that time, would you have said, I'm a dancer, or were you kind of a bunch of I was a dancer. I definitely was a dancer at that time. And what, did you travel? Did you... I danced in New York. There were all these great modern dance choreographers here, and I had the chance over those years, I guess from, you know mostly kind of 24 to 30 when I got pregnant with my daughter mm-hmm. to dance for. I was so lucky, you know, some of the people I really admired and managed to meet or take a workshop with. And then they, you know, then they cast me. And Anne Carlson is one of the choreographers I loved so much who I got to dance for and Wendy Perrin. And um, there were the way it worked was, you know, they would have a fixed amount of money, not a lot mm-hmm. to pay their dancers for a rehearsal period and performance. Not something you could live off of, you mm-hmm. know. But you would rehearse like two hours a day and do the shows and you would have the rest of your life. Mm-hmm. And it was an interesting. It was interesting, too, because I, you know, I grew up in Queens and I went to a state school and then a city school. And it wasn't until that time in my life that I realized the disparity, the sort of income disparity, because I would be dancing with some people who were not broke. Mm-hmm. And it, that's when I started to learn, oh, there's trust funds and there yeah. are, there are different setups there are people who, whose you know grandparents can pay their rent and right so it was an interesting world to be in right you know i learned a lot you mentioned to me before and correct me if i'm wrong that you didn't consider what you had like a real job or like a grown-up job until you were 39 you said yeah 38 39 i can't remember the exact year i guess it was 2004 so um yeah I guess I can't do the math. Okay, yeah, that's okay. Don't make me do math. You're, you're a good proofreader for math, but <laughs> right, I can proofread math. Um, so then, what was because I was freelance my whole life, mm-hmm. um, and when uh, when we had Ruby when I was thirty, my daughter. Um, basically, what it felt like the transition felt to me like, oh, this is the thing now that I love mm-hmm. that I support with my support job. You mm-hmm. know, I always considered myself to have a, a support job, my copy editing, or it kind of crept into writing. People would offer me jobs um, because I was, you know, I was good at editing. So people would offer me jobs and I didn't take them, but I took bigger projects. And um, I stopped dancing, but I was home with Ruby and I would take on freelance projects, some where I really like sold my soul to the devil, like writing advertising to children. So here's the question. I was reading something that a lot of young women today won't apply for a job or look for a new job unless they think they meet something like 95% of the qualifications. And I think especially so many of my friends dream of the of a freelance life in the sense that they can pursue a lot of different things and go with what interests them, but the the nervousness is, is 
what if the jobs don't come? And what if something comes that you're not qualified for? How did you respond to getting this variety of jobs when you might not think, I don't have a history in, I don't know, cartooning or whatever it might be? Or I didn't, I like you said, I'm not great at math, but I was proofreading math books. How do you navigate that type of search? I think the search? same thing applies where I wasn't quite as serious about life. But um, my husband at the time was, you know, sometimes he would have a steady gig and sometimes I would have a steady gig and we somehow managed to keep things afloat. Mm -hmm. But we had the same sensibility about life, which was just kind of, yeah, let's go for it. We can do this. And um, it wasn't always fun, though, because, you know, you're in a panic. And mm -hmm. I have to say the one thing about this stretch of my life of about 14 years since I've been like working for the man, mm -hmm. it's been actually just so nice. And I'm still shocked that every two weeks there's this money in my account. Mm -hmm. I can't you never get over the thrill. Yeah, that's true. But things like insurance, you know, we, I, I we were closing our eyes to certain things, you know, mm -hmm. but, you know, you create a network. And I also think the world has changed in terms of writing and content. And there's a lot more people doing it and it pays less. Mm -hmm. So um it's hard to it's hard to advise right now, but it's just that network, and you really have to hustle. Mm -hmm. You know, it's a const it's constantly setting up the next thing. How did you find people who were just offering you? Was it how did you develop your network? I mean, if you were in the dance world for the most part, and that was what you were, what you said you were, and that was where you spent a lot of your time. How did you cultivate this other network where you were able to get these freelance jobs and and keep writing? Through my friends and family. Mm -hmm. And uh, before I had Ruby, um, I worked in-house at a magazine called Sassy, which was before your time, but you would have loved it. Mm -hmm. It's super cool, sort of paradigm-changing teen magazine. And um, my sister was also art director there, and I got a regular gig where during closes, I would come in at 5 and work till like 1 a.m. Mm -hmm. for, you know, a week or two of the month. So I had a couple of these regular things that I could count on, and then I would patch together other things as they came um, or be referred by friends. The hard part was not taking a real job, actually, because people would offer me these real jobs and they'd be good jobs. But that would be the end of my opportunity to dance because that stuff happened in the same hours. Were you still dancing after you had your daughter or not as much? Last time I performed, I was pregnant with Ruby just a little bit. Mm -hmm. So, um, I, I mean, I still dance a little bit now and then in class, but uh, no, I, after I had Ruby, I was just home and freelancing. And as she got a little bigger, I started to step in for people on maternity leave. I would be asked to come in and do three days a week. I was given bigger projects. And then my first full-time job was as editor-in-chief of this little but very cool magazine called Breathe, mm -hmm. which was this kind of edgy, conscious living, yoga-ish magazine that um, launched in 2004 which was a little too early for its time, but it was it was a very cool project. How did you get an editor? I'm. It's this weird, is what, this right? Is what it is sounds so, weird now that I say this it. This is why I think everyone should talk to people that they work with, because even as I'm sitting here talking to you, I'm like, you went from being a dancer to then proofreading and copywriting editing, and then suddenly you land as an editor in chief. It was it, it was funny. the The truth was, I I had done so many projects, high level projects, and I had ghostwritten books for people. I had done special issues of magazines. I was qualified to work at a high level in magazines, but I kept saying no because mm -hmm. I was home with Ruby and Ian, my son, and that was where I wanted to be and probably where I would have stayed if I didn't need to work for the money. I mm -hmm. mean, that's I'm not going to lie. Yeah. I just wanted to stay home. Yeah. I loved it. I absolutely loved it. And I had freelance work. I mean, there was a point when I did my freelance work from 8 p.m. till 3 a.m. 
I was ghostwriting a book for Lucky Magazine for oh. Andrea Lynette and Kim France. Yeah. I'd be with the kids all day. And then uh, when their dad came home, you know, he'd hang out with them and I'd go into the, I'd shut myself in a room and I'd work. Right. So, um, you know, tired, but really happy, really happy time. But getting to do what you want to do. Yeah. And really, it was, a, it was a really good gig. And those big gigs led to other big gigs and getting in with people who I, I was really lucky to work for great people and great people usually land in great places and then they remember you mm-hmm. and they come find you. Yeah. You know, so that's it's a great way to 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 create a network is to, you know, have the luck to work for good people. Right. And then we said in the beginning that you also have a New York Times bestseller on your patchwork quilt of experiences. So how did how did that happen? Uh, the book is called the, the New Health Rules, and it's a picture book of wellness. Mm-hmm. And it, it happened because at Breathe Magazine, I had this cool doctor doing a column for me named um, Frank Lippman. He's a well-known functional medicine doctor. And the way we ended up writing the column was just talking on the phone. He would chat and I would write. And he liked my voice for his voice. And I've had that luck with a lot of people with ghostwriting. He asked me to do a book with him, like a big, fat medical kind of book. And I didn't want to do that. But I did have this idea that a lot of the stuff he said was so brilliant and so simple. And people are only paying attention to pictures. Yeah. And this was about 10 years ago when I thought of it. and uh, Or maybe like eight years ago. And I drew this thing out. I sat in City Bakery one day and I thought, here's what it's going to be. And I thought of all these these things he said that were really so simple and I wanted to be really gorgeous. And and then a friend of mine started at Artisan Books, which is the like, most beautiful. They publish the most gorgeous and really quite intelligent illustrated books. And we talked about it. She wanted to do it. And we, you know, we got to work with um, Gentle and Hires, Andrew Gentle and Marty Hires, who are these this amazing photography team. And um, it just really hit. It, it struck a chord for people. It really people really uh, related to it. And recently, um, David Boulay, the chef, mentioned mm-hmm. it in the in the New York Times about he said he bought 300 copies and oh, wow. he's given it to a lot of friends. And I've talked to other chefs who've had that reaction. Chefs are into it. So it was really uh, it was great. It was really something. It was kind of information I wanted to share with my family. That's the way I thought about it. Like, yeah. I want everyone to know these. These are simple things. They're not easy to do always, right. but they're pretty simple. So that was a labor of love. And having ghostwritten other books, I imagine, helped prepare you for something like that, where you could finally have your own voice and have your own name on it and, and own it in a new way. Yeah, it was really way. fun. I mean, it still was with somebody else. And um, I do, I am working on some other stuff on my own own. It takes me, I'm a very, I think, late bloomer mm-hmm. in almost everything. And so now at the this advanced age of 52, I'm finally really writing my own stuff and very excited about that. But this was fun because it was, I drove the project, the facts came from Frank, and I got to use a voice that I felt was um, was really friendly and relatable and would get to that little back part of people's brains where they'd say, uh, huh, maybe I, all right, maybe I can have avocado for breakfast. Maybe I don't need toast. Right. You know? And you and being late bloomer, we said you had your first grown up job when you were thirty eight, thirty nine. That is pretty late. What was what? What did you feel like when you finally wanted to take on a, a big person job, a, a real nine to five? I think you're going to be disappointed in my answer, Sam. Do you want me to make up a different answer? No, you can say your real answer. I, I had a really hard time being with my children, and I was thoroughly traumatized and insane. 
it was it felt wrong for me to leave them. I didn't want to leave them. And they were, you know, we had moved to the suburbs. And so it was very hard. A lot of tears. Yeah. But there couldn't have been a better, more creative job for me than creating that magazine. And it really gave me an incredible kind of empathy for everyone. I sort of felt like, this is what everybody feels like every day. Yeah. You know, and it was, you know, it made me stronger. My kids are great. They were fine. It was, you know, my kids were in five and nine at the time. Mm -hmm. So I don't know. Some people are much better at that. Maybe it's just I pictured things a certain way. Right. I don't know. And you said you hadn't really thought about your quote unquote story until we started talking about doing this show. And now that you've we've just spent 20 minutes talking about it, when you look back at going from dancer to ghostwriter to copy editor to where you are today, uh, what does it feel like to look back on that and and how and making those jumps and those leaps and pivots and the mush and the patchwork? Yeah, it feels more like a mush, like mm-hmm. everything, like that's what life, that it's funny when we look back and tell a story, we make it into a narrative. Mm-hmm. But while you're there, it's a bunch of tiny decisions and mistakes and running out from an embarrassing thing that happened at one job and, you know, uh, filling in for a friend who's sick. And it's just a mishmash. And I hope my life continues to to be that way. I like it that way. And you have a daughter who, how old did you say your daughter she's was? She's 21. She's 21. Mm-hmm. So she's about to enter the real world, exactly. quote unquote. We don't really, who knows what the real world really is. I'm not sure. I think I'm still living in a little bit of my own little bubble. But how do you talk to her about pursuing her passions and searching for a job and that that path? I let her lead because she's so wise and intuitive. She's just a really incredible person. And I also, I think I have a natural bossiness, like all of us at Real Simple. Mm -hmm. I think it's probably true. We spend all day telling people what to do. So I try to clamp my mouth shut and let her lead the conversation. Mm -hmm. Um, I also see with her generation, your generation, that guidance doesn't feel like something that you need. It's almost like softness Mm -hmm. is more helpful because it's... I mean, maybe it's not true across the board, but there's a really strong, you know, drive there Mm -hmm. already. And a lot of the opportunities have been laid out. Yeah. Well, I think it's funny because you don't think you need guidance until you're maybe where you're when you're my age, two years later, when you're 24 and suddenly you're like, I need guidance. What guidance do you need? I need someone to tell me when it's, you know, when you feel like you've outgrown a job, when you feel like you should move on, how to, you know, make new friends, when you should, how do you know if a city feels right to you? You start to lose that confidence, in my opinion, that I had when I was a senior in college. And I was like, oh, yeah, I'm going to move to New York and I'm going to go. I went to journalism school, so I'm going to apply to media jobs. And then suddenly you're there and certain things feel great and certain things feel off. And and you're like, oh, I need someone to tell me what to do next because I don't have my career counselor and I don't have my friends to look at and I don't have classes to sign up for next quarter. And I find that I've sort of I'm calling my mom every day like, what, well, what do you think I should do? And it's totally out of her. You know, she's a dentist. Right. <laughs> it's a little out of her wheelhouse to be like, here's what you, you what know, here's next say? in social media. <laughs> like it's she's like not, you know, she's not on Facebook. She's not on any of it. So she's like, I, I couldn't tell you <laughs> what to do next. Um, so it's interesting that you say that because I feel like I am constantly seeking guidance. And I think a lot of people who listen to the show are at that phase where they're they're like, I don't know what to do. Ne- I'm like a little paralyzed if I don't know what to do next. Like once you make the first leap, you don't really know where to go next if it's not directly to step two. 
Like if it's step two and a half or if you go to step four. Right. It feels a little scary. Well, it's funny. I feel like from my standpoint, I have wisdom, but maybe not career advice. And I do. And by the way, there, I did have friends who were on a very straight and narrow mm-hmm. path who went right from school to law school right. where we all hung out because it was so much nicer than the dumps that we lived in. Right. And then, you know, got jo- clerked for for a judge and then got jobs at corporate firms and, you know, are doing great. So it's not it's not necessarily my generation, but my crew, my crowd was like me. Right. So when I look at you, I think like I know a lot about life, but boy, the career stuff that you all deal with, it's it's also the world has changed so much. Social media, you know, I mean, I pretend I know about it at work, but <laughs> so do I. <laughs> Same with me. You're great. At it's it. tough to know anything when it changes every day. And and there's a new platform that we all have to get on and make faces on and click the buttons with. I wonder if all the counselors and all the advice giving and the way that we raised your generation, does that take something away from your trust of your own intuition? Oh, I, yeah, I don't trust mine at all. You don't? I, I couldn't. I, my intuition, I don't, I don't find it very comforting. No? Very rarely. No. I, I'm great at talking in circles. I have a very round intuition that <laughs> is on a, a consistent vicious cycle. But I do feel like the conversations I have with my friends now is just a, a rotating, well, I don't know what I want to do next. Well, I'm not really ready to leave. Well, I don't know what I want to do. Well, I don't know where I want to live. But I like living here, but I don't know. But, you know, should I – I don't know about this guy or I don't know about this job or I don't know about this roommate or I don't know about this doctor or whatever it might be. I feel like there's a lot of – you start out really sure and wherever, what city you move to, and then you kind of – right, as your parents step back, you're like, wait a minute <laughs> – Come back. I need your help. But Ruby sounds like she maybe she'll be the exception to the rule. No, she has a lot of those feelings, too. I think Mm -hmm. she's figuring stuff out. I just don't know the answers either. And I'm a sounding board. Mm -hmm. And I'll give my opinion when I'm asked, but I don't give it when I'm not asked. That's what I try to do, Mm -hmm. you know, if I'm not directly asked. But, you know, there's something I don't know if you are kind of a yoga you know, Eastern philosophy Mm -hmm. type person, but uh, to that I think is very helpful to this, I'm sure you've heard this before, but drop the storyline and just kind of feel it in your body. It's basically asking your gut. Mm-hmm. It's just sitting with it and saying, you know, all right, I'm going to think about this job. And you're somewhere in you, you know the answer, you know, if you will allow that to be. You know, we're all, we're a very talky yeah. culture, right? Right. And we're very connected and we're very much what's Susie doing over in Chicago and what are they doing in San Francisco? And I think it's become a lot more difficult for us to hear our guts. I think our guts have just become, become very quiet. <laughs> our, if my gut would tweet at me, maybe I would hear it better. <laughs> I really, I'm very into like my mentions on Twitter. So maybe my gut needs to get like a Twitter account. <laughs> I hope that happens for you. If that happens, that would go. That would be great. <laughs> That's how to reach me, gut, if you're listening. But just to end, and you have so much wisdom and I love talking to you and I love just hearing stories of people's paths because I just think it's always fascinating to hear that there are so many wonderful different ways that life can go. But if you were talking to me and Ruby here in this room and Ruby's graduating and we're both just thinking about what's next, what is what is the recurring advice or something you say pretty often to her as she as she thinks about the next 10 years? I don't think I've said this to her, but when I uh, at some point in my life, I just tried to start living without creating regret. Mm hmm. It's a simple way of thinking about, 
you know, whether you should take an opportunity or not. And not to take every opportunity, but just the just asking yourself that question. Mm-hmm. Might I regret this one? Sometimes the answer is no. Mm-hmm. And sometimes it's, yeah, I might. Let me do it. Mm-hmm. That's a good way. I like that a lot. Thank you so much, Danielle. Thank you for being here. I'll Thanks. see you tomorrow at work. Okay, I'll see you. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you so much for joining me for another episode of Adulthood Made Easy. If you have questions or topics you'd like me to cover in the future, just tweet them to me at Samsabell and I'll add them to my list. I'd like to thank our producer, Kristen Meinzer, and our editor, Tim Einenkel. If you're enjoying the show, don't forget to subscribe and review in iTunes. I'm Sam Zabel, and I'll see you next time. <laughs>